Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Amen? It's good to be back with you this morning. It's good to be together worshiping in this house. If you have little ones up through grade four and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can dismiss them at this time to the foyer. Teachers will meet them there, and you can pick them up when we're all done. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. Particularly chapter 10, where we'll be drawing our attention today to chapter 10. Hope you're in the Word this week, and this is not the first time you're checking in with the Word. If you are, you're starving this morning. You can make that habit of being in the Word every day, picking up a Through the Bible reading calendar for a Berean that you'll find out on the welcome table. Make it your habit, your resolution this year that you don't break is the one to be through the Word uh, every day this year. If you're new with us this morning... We're in a continuing study through the book of 1 Corinthians, with 2 Corinthians soon to follow, called God's Plan for a Healthy Church. And if you know anything about the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know there are many issues that Paul needs to bring to bear there with the church, which is still very relevant for the church today. And so we've been working our way through, as it is God's desire for the church to be healthy, he did deal with the issues that were there in Corinth, which continue in the modern church. A very relevant book for us, in particular... We are in a section which we've entitled Freedom in Christ and then Freedom's Danger. So really dealing with the gray area issues uh, that come up from time to time in our life, those decisions where the Bible needs to forbid nor command us to do something. And they may be from day to day. It may be from season to season in your life. It may be one time in your life you've determined what you're going to do. And so uh, you may find that those decisions come along. Well, uh, the Bible is not silent concerning how to go about making those types of decisions, and we've been able to work through this section here with Paul, starting in chapter 8, going all the way through chapter 10, verse 32. So we've been able to take a look at some of those things. We'll review a little bit today, and we, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 10 today. A number of years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study concerning people who'd been bitten by dead snakes. Research was conducted by two doctors who were toxicologists at Good Samaritan Regional Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Their interest in the study began several years earlier after admitting a patient who was bitten by a snake while gardening. Uh, the man, according to the man, he had cut off the rattlesnake's head with a shovel and then later bent down to pick up the snake's head and he was bit. And so he came in, that was the kickoff to their study. For a year, the two doctors focused on uh, their research on that phenomenon. And they discovered 15% of those being admitted for snake bite were bitten by snakes that were dead. They also said in their study that they were surprised the percentage was that high, and they were also surprised that most people don't know that dead snakes still bite. Something my brother and I learned as kids living in the desert in Tucson, just outside of Tucson, is that rattlesnakes have a reflex action. It continues a long time after they're killed. And so when we would kill a rattlesnake, we'd cut its head off, and if we weren't... uh, preserving the whole thing, we'd bury it or put it under a rock so none of our animals or our dogs would come and, and sniff around and, and be bit. And we certainly wouldn't uh, touch that thing. But anyway, the doctors discovered that many do still, and a decapitated rattlesnake can still bite an hour after death. And that information uh, will not only protect you from venomous snakes, it can also provide some spiritual safeguards. And the, really, the, I think the connection here for us as we look at this issue of freedom in Christ and gray areas is as we realize that we can get in over our head pretty fast inside the freedom in Christ that we have. And we've looked at some of those things, and and we understand that. But as you think about Satan's classification as a serpent, it reminds us that he's still dangerous, even though Christ has delivered the fatal blow. 
we are to consider our flesh dead to sin, and that is certainly uh, the situation that is true about us, and yet circumstances that we allow in our lives, freedoms that we allow, can create the same type of spiritual and physical and moral consequences as the two doctors discovered in their study. We can celebrate Satan's inevitable demise, we can celebrate the future hope of a glorified body, but we should exercise wisdom by remaining spiritually armed until Satan's funeral is complete. And our body and everything connected to our desires all made new. So as we come to this last, these last 11 verses in chapter 10, Paul will pull together the spiritual safeguards for making these kind of great area decisions. And we've worked through a lot of these, but we're not going to go back through them. I would encourage you, though, to go online and listen to them if you've missed this series starting in chapter 8. All these passages that we look at in uh, Corinthians are relevant, but I, and some are, some are to, to treat problems, and some are to be a prophylactic against a problem, but I would say that uh, this issue continues to afflict the church today in uh, our age of my rights and, and my desires, and that's all that matters, and all of that kind of thing. So I would suggest that you go back and listen. But he has given a lot of these, uh, this information out already. So what you're going to get today, Paul, again, comes back to, so it will sound familiar to you, uh, to your ear if you've been here, and it'll be new for you if you haven't, but it'll be, uh, no matter where we check in with God's Word, very important, uh, and will come away enriched. But he's already pointed out the dangers of certain activities where a believer uh, can be taken captive by their freedom, and we looked at that already. He's instructed the church to flee certain behavior, so he's put a limit on freedom already as Paul uh, walks through this passage. He's given us a snapshot of the damage that can be done to unbelievers and to fellow believers uh, by a prideful flaunting of freedom by someone who believes that their only consideration is what they want to do. And so today we're going to look and see him really pull all of that together and give us eight principles that give the church the guidelines it needs to, in the use of freedom. And so we're going to see that today, and that's where we're headed. And these will be very familiar to you if you've been with us. And in the middle of the passage, he's going to get a, give a very relevant example of how to handle a likely circumstance. And so in the middle of this mire of what can I allow in my life, what, in my freedom, what can I do where I won't harm someone else, it's dangerous and it's a hard, those are hard decisions to make. And so Paul gives uh, a, a great, very relevant example, uh, a hypothetical situation, if you will, is very applicable today to how to go about that. Now let's read our passage, if you would, just pick up in verse 23 of, of chapter 10, and we'll read that together all the way through the end of that chapter. Picking up verse 23, it says, all things are lawful. That's where we are, okay? I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in front of you in one of the chairs, or just reading your copy. I'll give you verse cues, and we can stay together. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Verse 25, eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Now here you go, I'm just going to add this. This is the hypothetical circumstance here that we'll look at today, starting verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Verse 29. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Let's stop right there. Now, as we read the very first verse, Paul starts out in very familiar territory for us from way back in chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, Paul was speaking about sexual sin, uh, about immorality in chapter 6, verse 12, and he said those very words. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And Paul is just reiterating for us, just a reminder when we were back in chapter 6, that all things are forgivable, but some sins really cheat you. And you understand your freedom in the law of Christ. Uh, you understand that there is no condemnation forever for you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith and hope in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, you need to understand that there is never any condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So inside that framework, inside the law of Christ, which is this grace in which you stand, there is never any condemnation. So in that light, in real circumstances, you can participate in things that perhaps the world does, which would be considered sin. Will you be con condemned at that point, beloved? Never. You're never condemned because all your sin has been forgiven. That's a very important principle to keep in mind because it's key to helping us understand how freedom works, okay? And it's a very comforting thing to understand that there's nothing that you can do that will ever bring you into eternal condemnation ever again, ever, okay? So it's important that Paul reiterates this. Everything's forgivable. Why? Because you're never under any condemnation. Now, the Lord will bring discipline on you to correct your mistakes, perhaps, to protect, protect uh, continuing actions on your part. But even in that, it's his loving correction to those who are his. But there's never any condemnation. So, Paul just reiterates, all things are forgivable, but some things really cheat you. So you can get into a sin, and that doesn't mean you won't have repercussions from that sin. And that's Paul's point. Immorality is one of those things. In chapter 6, that's what he was talking about. It's one of those things God forgives, God has, and will totally forgive, completely forgive all sin by the blood of Jesus Christ in his grace. But for some sins, like immorality, in chapter 6, verse 12, there's a very high price because there's loss built into the sin. And so Paul just gives that warning. Sin always subtracts, it never adds to us, and sexual immorality subtracts a lot. And to connect this passage really with our present passage, in your freedom from guilt and from condemnation, you may put yourself in a position then where sexual sin is dominating you or has taken you captive. And God will always provide a way of escape, and we've seen that. Uh, but placing yourself in a position where you can be trapped is foolish. It's always going to cause you loss and sometimes great loss. That's Paul's point. Back in chapter 6, we saw that back in June. Now, the second principle we saw back in June was that the believer's body is brought up under the power of sexual sin. That's the last part of verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is reiterating that all things are forgivable, but some things trap you. That's just obvious, isn't it? Because we've all been there at some point or another. Perhaps you're there this morning. In other words, God's going to forgive, but you could be captured. Uh, mastered, exosiazo, that verb, exercising authority over, and here it's used of the body. So the idea is, is that in your freedom, you may participate in something that at a future date may become your captor temporarily. Now, is that a permanent captor? No. Are you there forever? No. You're always going to provide a way of escape. We've seen that. The Lord has given that, that instruction. We looked at that in, in 1 Corinthians 10. But the fact of the matter is that all things are lawful for you, but some things will master you. Now, here the Corinthian believers in the name of liberty are losing their freedom and becoming slaves to their own desires, bitten by a dead snake, if you will. Those desires which have been crucified, the body which is dead to sin, but still 
temporarily bringing themselves under that bondage. And we looked at a number of places where Paul has warned of this very issue, given some preventative measures to avoid that pitfall. Now, Paul repeats this approach to the use of freedom as he sums up the eight points, the eight principles really, to help the church, to help uh, the Corinthian church, to help the modern church make these gray area freedom decisions. Uh, he is going to repeat this approach. So I believe it would be reasonable to say that these principles are of greatest importance on a day-to-day basis. To keep these forefront in your mind as warnings, Paul repeats them. And so I think because Paul reiterates them, it's not because he's uh, going a little short on memory. It's because he knows these are important and we grow short on memory as we allow things in our life. Now look at verse, chapter 10, verse 23, if you would. Very familiar language. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So again, the principle is clear. Inside the law of Christ, there is no condemnation. But just because you can do it, doesn't mean that it'll be profitable, okay? In the present active indicative, symphiary, it's an agrarian word. We've looked at it before. Symphiary has to do with bringing in a good crop. And so uh, the labor in the field or the grove or the vineyard brought in to the barn for profit. And Paul is using this in a figurative sense, uh, relating to those things done in the guise of freedom in Christ. So here's how you can put it together. Principle number one, and you can see this in the back of your bulletin. You can find notes if those are helpful for you. Anything that's underlined here will be uh, your takeaway. So here's principle one. Some actions then that are presently marking your life within the bounds of your freedom are not bringing in good results. That's Paul's point. And maybe very costly. So it's not happening that what you're allowing in your life is creating a good environment. You're not bringing in the profit, if you will, from the field figuratively. What's happening is you're losing it. Okay? And in the context here at Corinth, Paul means it could be costly to your spiritual life, it could be detrimental to the fellowship of the church, and an expensive loss to your testimony. So that's Paul's warning, and he repeats this, that he, the same thing he said in chapter 6. And then Paul, starts, Paul starts the same way again as a serious reminder in the second part of verse 23. He says this, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. So same emphasis as before, no condemnation in Christ. So all things are lawful. No condemnation in Christ, okay? You stand inside the law of Christ, which is the gospel of grace. You can never bring yourself under condemnation. All things are lawful. All things are forgivable. No condemnation, but not all things edify. Oikodomeo, present active indicative verb. Edify is the word that has to do with building and restoring a house. And we looked at this before as well. From building up the foundation, putting up the walls, adding grace, adding furniture, adding restfulness to the dwelling, you know, your favorite place to relax, that kind of thing, adding some nice things to that. He says, listen, all things are lawful, but not all things do that. And again, Paul uses this word in a figurative sense in that it relates to establishing and promoting growth in the Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, blessedness, all those kinds of things. You may allow some things in your life which are forgivable, but they might not be adding to your testimony, okay? So principle two is some freedoms that are presently being exercised in your life are not building up your spiritual walk, but they're tearing it down. They're not making you more gracious. They're not making you more mature. They're not making you more spirit-controlled. They're doing the opposite. And in the context here at Corinth, Paul also means it's not just affecting your spiritual life. These freedoms are detrimental to the spiritual walk of others in the church, particularly weaker brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ, and it isn't building up the spiritual mission of the church. It's removing things from it. So Paul says, listen, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Some things are taking away from your harvest. They're not adding to it. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Some things aren't adding to your spiritual benefits. Some things aren't adding to the spiritual furniture, if you will, of your life. Things are being removed, and it's bare bones. Now, look at verse 24, if you would. And Paul gives us our third principle, governing gray area 
uh, things and areas of freedom, okay? Now, we've looked at those previous two numerous times, so I don't want to spend any more time there. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. That's principle number three, okay? When you are thinking about what you're going to do, make sure it's going to positively affect those around you. And that's just obvious for Paul, and he said it numerous times. We've heard it already. When you're thinking about what you're going to do, make sure it's going to positively affect those around you. So in your freedom, in the gray area things, this has to be part of, your, of, of the factor. It's not just like the people at Corinth in chapter 8 where they're just, hey, I'm free in Christ and, and an idol is nothing in the world. I can do what I want. Paul says, yes, you are free in Christ. And yes, an idol is nothing in the world. But no, you can't just do whatever you want with that being the only consideration, whatever I feel like doing. I think that's, a, that's an infection in the church nowadays. I, I can do it because I'm free to do it. So we wear our freedom around like a chip on our shoulder, hoping somebody will knock it off so we can give them a reason why we have the right to do it. That's completely opposite of the way Paul approaches this. You're thinking about what you're going to do. Make sure it's, it's going to positively affect all those around you. Now, we saw that same thing. We were in Romans 15. We saw the exact same thing. Same idea. Illustrates it wonderfully. Paul said this, and we looked at this when we went through this book. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And that word neighbor is just the word another. So it's not specific. It's the emphasis on those around you, whomever they may be, whoever they are. Paul says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And here, you know, when it comes to freedom, others come first. And here we're just really continuing the same thought from 1 Corinthians 9, 19. We looked at before, for though I'm free from all men, Paul says, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That's Paul's instruction to the church. Listen, I'm free of all men. I'm under no obligation to do anything you expect me to do. I'm free of all of that. And yet, he says, I've placed myself as a servant to all that I may win more. So above all of my freedom and my concern about my own rights is other people and what they think and how that will negatively or positively impact them. So then we get back to verse 24. It says, let no one seek his own but own good but that of his neighbor. The context to hear of good would be uh, of the neighbor, okay? Uh, so for another prophet, for another's prophet, for another's edification, the things that I do in my freedom are for another's salvation, for another's sanctification, for another's growth. Our focus is how will my freedom, how will my gray area impact someone in a positive way for their growth, for the good of the fellowship, for the good of testimony. And I guess a good question to ask right now would be this, if you really want to make this relevant in your own life, uh, to make sure we, we're really coming in line here because we don't know how each of us hooks up with this, okay? But can you put your finger on anything in your life and say, this isn't for me, this is for someone else inside your freedom? What I'm doing right now, this is not for me. I'm, I'm denying myself because I want to make sure that this is for someone else. Can you put your finger on something in your life that can, you can say that's the case? Let alone be able to say this is found a foundational principle in my life of the way I make all my decisions. Can we just say one thing, see, because we have a very, you know, just I think our culture is just permeated with just this selfishness and, and uh, just this focus on ourselves and what we have the right to do. And I want to please myself and all of that. And that's not new. But the fact of the matter is, I think as a believer, I think it's great to just start by one, just finding one and then make it into a foundational principle in your life, see. Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, that's very familiar to you, of course. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He's asking, what, you know, he was asked, well, what are, what's the greatest laws? Well, there they are. The command is to everyone. We understand that, don't we? The two greatest commands. So it follows that Paul would include that basic principle here as he corrects their philosophy, really, and gives them life skills on how to manage themselves inside the church. As we go on to verses 25 through 26, we'll see Paul's next principle. Look at verse 25, if you would. 
Here's what Paul says. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now we're getting to real practical, okay? Because you can just kind of get caught up with, well, will this offend somebody? Will that offend somebody? And, and those, those processes need to be in your mind. But when it gets right down to it, I mean, life is full of all kinds of decisions that fall in the gray area issues, that fall inside the freedom of Christ, that hasn't been prohibited by Paul. We understand, you know, we're not free to continue in sin, okay, unless we want to be disciplined by the Lord. So we understand all that, okay? I don't have to redefine all that for you. So the fact of the matter, in real life, it's like, so what, do I, what can I do? All right? So Paul's going to address the specific issue here in Corinth, which is meat offered to idols. But we can extrapolate it out, and we can make some great applications. So let's start with Paul's instruction. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Here's the thing. The topic from the start has been eating meat offered to idols. So Paul says, this is how you survive in your culture. Okay? Now keep in mind, Paul has already told them that they have to limit their freedom and not participate in idol worship. Remember that. We looked at that already. Or go to the temple and celebrate because you become one with those in the temple. Even though the idol's nothing, people look at you and you're eating the meat that's dedicated to the idol. You become one with them in fellowship. Paul says you don't want to do that. Besides, when you're going there, you're fellowshipping with demons. Even though there isn't any God there, doesn't mean isn't anything there. There are demons there in these false worship uh, places and those are ones that you're having fellowship with. He says, and as a believer, you don't want to have fellowship with demons. So the bottom line is this. Listen, you can't go to the temple and celebrate. You're not going to go and participate in idol worship. These things are not okay. So he's, he's not going to back up here and say that those things are okay not to do. He's just saying this. He's talking about going to the meat market and buying groceries, and obviously some of those supplies would have come from the pagan temples. And we went through all that history. You can catch up with that online, okay? Bottom line goes through the temple, out the back, the priests take it, sell it at the meat market, make a little profit, people come and buy it. Okay, it's just the way it works. And there were some problems in Corinth, people were having some problems with that. And some of the people were saying, what's the big deal? I can eat what I want. Okay, and so Paul's just saying, listen, whatever's sold in the meat market, without asking questions, go ahead and, and eat that. It's not a problem. So pr principle number four from Paul, as it relates to these other areas of freedom, here it is. And this is a growth issue for the church, okay? Don't trouble your conscience. Don't try to find trouble. Don't try to create doubt in your mind. You're time to grow. You're free in Christ. It's okay. Go forward. All right? Looking for red lights, not green lights. That's what I tell people all the time as they think about God's will. Looking for red lights, you're not looking for green lights. You walk forward as you're walking with the Lord, and you go ahead and do it. Paul says, listen, whatever is sold in the meat market, eat it without asking questions for conscience sake. So, this is how it is. Don't ask a bunch of questions which only takes you in the direction of legalism. Well, I can't do that because, you know, that's, you know, that's been halal. I can't eat that, okay? In the direction of disbelief, in, in the direction of certainty or, or misgiving. Don't do that, Paul says. Just eat whatever's sold in the meat market. Don't ask any questions. Back in Romans chapter 14, verse 22, very great illustration. Comes right, similar, similar admonition from Paul. Very similar circumstances concerning preferential things, differences between believers. He says this. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself with what he approves. In other words, don't just start looking around for reasons why you probably shouldn't have done that, okay? Bring a reasonable amount of process to it. You don't want to offend people. You, you know some things for sure will. You know there's some cultural norms that are going to offend unbelievers. You've got to avoid those, obviously. And you've made yourself a slave to all so that you may win some, Okay? But the bottom line is, Paul says here in Romans 14, 22, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction. If you're okay with it, then just go forward. Don't start asking stuff about it and condemning yourself by what you said was okay a minute ago. Same exact idea. 
Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. So when you're going, you're thinking, ah, I shouldn't do it. Now you're in trouble. So Paul says, listen, don't trouble your conscience. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. Because here's the thing, as he said in Romans 14. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating his eating is not from faith, and whatever's not of faith is sin. So if you're having trouble with it, don't do it. Otherwise, don't ask questions about it. Just go forward, okay? I think that's clear. Now, all of that, all that admonition there in Romans 14, 22 is all based on these verses from Paul earlier. And these are really great ways to kind of make a good foundation for you. And I'm trying to give you, if you will, just basic life skills. So, hey, when you're making these decisions, realize there's more there uh, to bring to bear, but you're not overly concerned and overly worried about every single thing in your life and becoming legalistic. Verse 14, he says in Romans 14, 14, I know and convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. See how Paul could say later, listen, just... The faith you have, has your own conviction before God. Happy is he who doesn't condemn himself by what he approves. Listen, I'm convinced, Paul says in the Lord, that nothing is unclean in itself. Why? Because Christ has made it all clean. And you're not condemned. And you never will be. But to him who thinks anything's unclean, to him it's unclean. So you're approaching and you're thinking, I shouldn't do it? Then don't. In verse 19 he says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So there's some other things that are bringing to bear here, and ways decisions are made, and the same repeating thing that we've seen all the way through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 through 10, is that there's some other considerations besides just yourself, but have it as a conviction, but if it's going to offend somebody, don't do it. Otherwise, go forward. Now, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 25, he says, eat anything sold in the meat market, without asking questions for conscience sake, in and of itself then, there's no condemnation in this freedom. So don't try to find any. All things are clean. And they're gonna have to take Paul's at his word here. All things are clean, because some of them are struggling. Some of them are brand new believers. Some of them just came out of the idol worship and that's all they've known all their life. And perhaps they even imagine that the, the idol did something and, and did something in their life and they've, they're connected to that and they've had that fellowship all their life. Paul's saying, time to grow, it's okay. You can grow up, okay? Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. There's nothing there. All things are clean. And they've got to take Paul at his word. And this will be a growth area for some of them. And a confirmation for others who understood that it's all clean. And then he gives them this assurance. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Just comes right back and says, there's nothing there. Nobody home in the idol temples. Everything that's on the earth belongs to him. It all belongs to him. Everything in the temple, everything in the meat market, in every place, in any age of all the created earth, it all belongs to him. Nobody's home in any of the temples at any time, at any time in the past or at any time in the future, and everything that's on the earth all belongs to the, or the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. Okay? But don't go there and worship, and don't become one body with pagans. But other than that, don't worry. And that's how you grow, and that's how you strengthen your walk, and you strengthen your trust, and you strengthen your conscience. Very practical application for today. Enjoy your freedom. Uh, unless it's been prohibited by the Lord or limited somehow by Paul's comments, go forward with those things. Now, let's get to the hypothetical situation where Paul tells believers what to do. Because in the exercise of freedom, in the things Paul hasn't limited, it can be difficult to know what you should allow. Now, he's already started in saying, let's don't ask questions, just go forward, okay? And there are a lot of circumstances and many different gray area decisions that may need to be made at different points in your life. Some are not permanent. Some are for this time. Some are for 
uh, for a temporary, just temporary time, some are for your whole life, and you try to be constantly aware of offenses and what your freedom uh, can cause a problem with someone, and you want to be aware of that kind of thing, but you're not always going to see everything coming. So Paul gives, again, some very practical advice. Look at verse 27, if you would, and we'll read through verse 30, okay? Here's the hypothetical situation that applies to the church in Corinth, but then has a much greater application to us. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So here's the question. You have a pagan, he invites you over to his house. If you want to go, go. And that falls right in with what Paul said. You're not, everything's clean. The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. If you want to go, you be a witness to that person, go. If you have a freedom that you want to do, you've been asked to do something with someone and it's not been prohibited by the word and you're not in sin, do it. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So there's the catch. Verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So here's the deal. An unsafe friend invites you out to dinner. You're a strong believer. Or maybe you're growing into a strong believer. You're still on the line a little bit, but you're growing. And, and Paul has encouraged your life skills because he's told you there's nothing unclean in and of itself, that all things are, are, uh, are free and all of that stuff. And so you're growing, okay? And Paul says, listen, if you want to go, you don't have to go, okay? So it's not go. If they ask you, go. If you want to go, do it. In the group for dinner, uh, you're going to go. And, of course, uh, uh, you may not know them. Uh, but as it happens many times at dinner parties, you discover someone at your table is also a believer or, or maybe someone is checking out uh, Christianity. Maybe someone's been witnessed to a few times. They haven't come to faith, but they're aware of what's going on. They're aware of the, uh, what Christ has done in their own life and all that. They're under conviction, perhaps. And this guy is Paul's example. And, he, and he's going to reveal himself by what he's going to whisper to you. Okay, look, look there at, verse, at the last part of verse 27. Paul says, if you want to go, go ahead and go and eat anything that's set before you without asking any questions for conscience sake. So don't worry about it. If, you know, if, if it's just you and the pagan, or you and a group of people, and they're all pagans, and, and he slaps down this big medium rare ribeye, and, uh, or he coughs off a big piece of prime rib, and he slaps it right in front of you, whatever it is, it's okay. Inside this context here in Corinth, where he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols, he says, whatever they serve you, just eat it. In other words, when they put it on your plate, don't say, wow, that's a really big cut. It must have cost a fortune. Did you get it on sale at the gently used meat market at the back of the idol temple? Don't ask that. And that's not really dinner conversation anyway. It's like, you ever had somebody ask a question at a dinner? It's like weird. It's like everything stops. But anyway, that's the kind of thing that would cause that to happen. <laughs> Just like that. It's real quiet for a second, you know. But anyway, so he serves it to you. Don't say, ooh, I bet this was offered in an idol temple. Don't say any of that. It's okay. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's free. Go ahead. It's you and the pagan or you and a group of pagans and all fine. Okay, now look at verse 28 and you're going to tell what's about to happen, right? That steak or that prime rib is about to become the biggest, nicest prime rib or steak that you ever were given and you didn't eat. Okay, now look at verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it. You're like, ah. So don't eat it. That's what Paul says, for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And now you know, even though you didn't ask, 
This meat is from the discount meat market. This meat came from the back of an idol temple. And your host serves meat offered to idols, and now you're stuck. Because this pagan that you're trying to evangelize is serving you dinner, and he serves you meat offered to idols, and you're okay, it's okay for you to eat it. And you're a strong brother, and now you know there's a weak brother or here, or there's someone who understands a little of the cultural issues at play, and what Christians do and what Christians don't do in their own ideas, okay? They're at the party with you, and maybe they've been witnessed to by another believer or something. Anyway, a pagan isn't going to ask this question. <laughs> you know, nobody who's used to eating meat from back of meat idol, uh, meat market is going to lean over to you and say, hey, this was sold in the back of the meat market. It's just, it's food, and they're going to eat it. It's an immature believer at the table with you, or it's someone who's been witnessed to you. That's the only ones who would ask that question. So your weaker brother or someone who thinks this is an issue comes up and whispers in your ear. He leans over, he puts his elbow in your ribs and says, I can't eat this. This is meat offered to idols. My conscience won't allow me to eat. I can't eat this. It's like I'm back in idol worship again. I mean, your host is happy to serve you something good. He's happy to do it. You're okay with eating it. Paul says it's fine. You can eat it if you want. Uh, and it's something you want to eat. An idol is nothing in this world. Paul says not to worry about it. I'm not supposed to look for reasons not to eat. I'm not supposed to ask a bunch of questions. Just eat whatever's sold in the meat market. Eat now whatever's sold at this table at this pagan's house. It doesn't matter because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But this weaker brother, he's paralyzed. So what are you going to do? I mean, he's watching you. Do you please the pagan and tear down the weaker brother or pull up the road that leads to his salvation if he's just been witnessed to? Or do you make an excuse not to eat and you preserve the testimony of the gospel or you help an immature believer to continue to grow? And the answer is, you make an excuse and you don't eat. If you have to offend somebody, you have to offend the pagan who invited you over. Okay? And that's just, we see this over and over again, and it's just obvious. Okay, you have to decline. And it may be awkward, but it appears very clear. You still have to do it. You have to decline. Same reasons we've seen before. Look at verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. There you go. So if someone is a weaker brother, someone who's been witnessed to, is coming along in the faith, uh, towards faith, and they understand the cultural issues, and maybe they have an idea of what Christians do and don't do, and they've said this to you, you're in trouble. Do not eat it. You're in trouble if you eat it, because you really violated that direct command. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake, you have to refuse, see? And that's Paul's fifth principle. This is how you manage your life. The freedom you're enjoying, if that freedom you're enjoying creates questions about your testimony, or causes a believer to question his conscience, you have to limit your, your freedom in that area. It's very, very important. In just a very practical, hypothetical situation, Paul says, listen, the believer comes first, the one who's been witnessed to and has begun to understand something about the gospel, they come before your freedom to eat that steak at this pagan's house, okay? Now, that's how you manage your life, Paul says. This is how, this is how you bring it into the present. Now, Paul's going to clarify something here. Look at verse 29. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. Obviously, he's not telling the strong brother to start worrying about the situation for himself. He's just clarifying that, okay? I'm not talking about your conscience, Paul says. Don't eat it for your own conscience. Like, all of a sudden, you think, oh, maybe the idol is something. No, the idol is nothing. You're correct in your evaluation of it. You're right to eat it if nobody questioned it. But you have to be aware of the other person's conscience. Paul already told him if he wanted to go, go enjoy himself. He's free. He, he knows he's free. There's nothing wrong at all with him eating the steak. It doesn't appear to violate any principles of limiting freedom. Paul's already laid down. He's not in the temple. He's not worshiping together with the idol as he's eating. 
None of those things are going on. So, but once again, the strong is asked to reign in the freedom on behalf of the weak. And then Paul asks two questions here. And Paul always does this. He preempts the questions he knows are going to come. Paul's just wise that way. He, he gives some instruction. He knows exactly what they're going to say back to him. So he just goes ahead and preempts the questions. Somebody's going to say, hey, you know, why does he get to have the preference? Why, if I continue with a meal, would I be the one who looks bad when I'm in the right? I have the right to do this. I mean, he's got to grow up, right? I mean, it's time to grow up. Time to put on your big boy pants and, and you're, a, you're a believer and time to, you know, walk in the way of, of freedom, okay? And that seems reasonable enough in a world of my rights and my freedoms and what I want to do is all that matters. But that's not the world we live in when we're believers. So question number one at the end of verse 29, look there. Paul's going to give an answer to, at the end of this chapter and we're going to see it in just a moment. But the question is this. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? And we saw the same issue back in Romans 14, 16, and the same answer. So we're going to go there and look again before we see Paul's answer at the end, just because it'll flow better for us. He says this. Right there at the bottom, Romans 14, 16, he says, Therefore, do not let what, is good, what for you is a good thing uh, be spoken of as evil. The same universal principle as, it, as he dealt with it in Romans 14. Offending a weaker brother's conscience, or what could be the case here in a cultural setting, when someone says, hey, Christians shouldn't do that, right? I mean, that's not what Christians do. When someone's asking that question, then doing either of those two things creates an opportunity for what is truly good, which is freedom in Christ, to be spoken of as evil. So Paul says, listen, this is why you have to be aware of the conscience of the other person, because your freedom will be spoken of as evil, and that's the best thing ever. So don't do that. Question two, Paul preempts, verse 30, look there. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? I mean, I came here, I had the right to do it, I gave thanks for it, I thank the Lord for making me aware that I'm free, and that there's no condemnation here, nobody home at the idol, and everything belongs to the Lord, and I can eat it, it's not a problem, so if I give thanks, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? And again, we saw the issue in Romans 14, 17 through 18, same exact issue. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not eating and, here's the big one for the Reformed group, drinking. It's not that. What is it? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. What's your foremost concern? Same universal principle here, just restated in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. We'll see it in a minute. What you think about your freedom is irrelevant. You're a bond slave to all. And whether it's done before weak believers, or in front of an inquiring world, or an antagonistic world who says Christians don't do that, whatever it is, we're not really offering true thanks to God while we're causing another believer or someone who knows what Christians, or thinks they know what Christians should do, to stumble and tarnish the effectiveness of the church. Get it? You've got to be active here as you think about your life. And what other people think about what you do, especially non-believers who look at the church and say, that's not what Christians do, that has to apply to you, and that has to limit your freedom. That's Paul's entire point here. That's the reason for this example, for this hypothetical example of what has to happen and who has to come first. See, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's about the priorities that our master set out as important, and that's 
his kingdom and witnessing to others and bringing people into sanctification as they come to faith. Those are the things that are important. See, The main jobs he gave us to do. And you won't be slandered or judged by others when you reign your freedom in. See, that's the thing. And when you do that, Romans 14, 18 says, you'll be approved by men. And it's, it's sticky. And it's not easy. And you've got to evaluate it constantly. And maybe make some decisions that you kind of cover the rest of your life because you know what people think about those particular things that you have allowed in your life. And although they're free and they're open and all of that kind of stuff, you have to, re- you have to limit your freedom. So in this situation, the pagan isn't priority. The one who invited you, who doesn't know Christ, doesn't know anything about Christ, who you were looking at as an opportunity for a witness. Because if you offend your weaker brother, you've ignored and minimized the preeminence of Christian love and what you're supposed to be doing with those who are weaker than you in the faith. Or you've ignored a cultural norm, what people think Christians don't do. And ignoring a cultural norm is nothing that a Christian will do. You have to be aware of what that cultural norm is. And you've caused people to blaspheme the gospel and its effect and you've caused freedom to be looked at as a wicked thing. And you're in sin when you do that. Let's just be clear. When Paul admonishes you not to do it, and you go ahead and do it, and you create that environment, you pull up the, the road that leads to the gospel, or you tear down a believer and make it hard for him to grow because of what you allow, that's just flat-out sin. There's no way else to describe that. But if you offend, here's the thing. Here's the other side. If you offend the pagan in order to show love to your brother or to be sensitive to a cultural norm, you've given a profound testimony to the unredeemed world. And you've made the church very relevant. Love overrules everything. And that's the kind of association most pagans would like to get into, to be honest. An association where people cared enough about each other to set aside perfectly good liberties so as not to offend. An association in which people were sensitive enough to the cultural norm that they reign in their habits and make a bridge for the gospel. The pagan will see your love and your care for a fellow Christian and the testimony of the church and a bridge to the gospel and perhaps then has been built. See? Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33, our last three principles, and we'll finish up. And we've already seen them. So once again, this is not me repeating something we've said before. This is Paul repeating something he said numerous times because they're important. Okay, so let's give them a look. Verse 31, whether then... You eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's principle six for your notes. As it relates to gray area decisions, that's what we're coming back to. As it relates to uh, freedom in Christ issues, test them this way. What you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear. That's what it means to glorify God. So we use that word, we banny it around a lot in Christianity. All of it, you know, bring God glory, we want to meet together, bring God glory. You realize that the only time we bring God glory is when his attributes are clear in whatever we're doing. I mean, we can sing all day long, but if his attributes are not clear, that's not bringing God glory. We can live Christian life, but if his attributes are not clear, we're not bringing God glory. So the bottom line is this, is it relates to, remember, these are all principles Paul's given to kind of sum up how to evaluate gray area freedom types of decisions. What you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear. Whatever then you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is, so it's much broader than just this small issue of eating meat offered to idols. Whatever the freedom is, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So is causing someone to stumble in their faith bringing glory to God? Is that what Christ would do? No. Is, is uh, tearing up the road that leads to the gospel bringing glory to God? No, it isn't. Absolutely not. And I, that's, it's just obvious, isn't it? 
But when you say this, what you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear, isn't, isn't that really a comprehensive statement of what Christianity is all about? Isn't that just kind of, just kind of follows? Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of, the, a fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Righteous fruit, Jim uh, taught on that last Sunday morning, makes God's attributes clear. Righteous fruit in your life. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every human confessing that Jesus is Lord brings glory to God. So get busy witnessing. Because everyone who confesses Jesus Christ is Lord brings glory to God. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Filling a place and serving in the church brings glory to God. So find some open spots at Berean and plug yourself in. Why? Because you make God's attributes clear. So it's, just, just, it's just obvious, isn't it? I mean, it's not something esoterical out there that we can't really grab a hold of. And oh, that bring, Maybe that brings glory to God. He's just really clear. That brings glory to God. And we could go on. The whole service could just be about that. What verses to end that way? It's like when we talk about this is the will of God. And people are like, well, what is the will of God? Well... Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. This is the will of God. That's not that hard, is it? That's super hard. It's just we ignore it. Rejoice always, right? So God's will is clear. What brings God glory is clear. Scriptures end with that a lot. So we should, when you read in your quiet time on a daily basis, and you say this brings glory to God, okay. Immediately your prayer is, Lord, what part of my life am I not doing here that's it's causing you not to get glory. I want to start doing that. That's how your quiet time interacts with, your, with life. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you're reviled in the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and, God and of God rests on you. When people run you down and run down your character because you have a relationship with Jesus, that brings glory to God. What you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear as it relates to freedom, as it relates to gray area decisions, my concern is not freedom. My concern is God's glory. My concern is not my right to eat and my right to drink and my right to do this and my right to do that and whatever else. My concern is for God's glory. That's the point. As we understand that our number one concern in life is to make sure God is glorified, we realize that every other principle really is coming up under the one overarching principle of bringing God glory. So everything we see is an admonition from Paul or as direction as we read it in the scripture. As we obey it, what do we do? We reflect positively on the Lord. We become clearer so that Christ can be seen as a reprint through us. Let's look at the last two, though, anyway. Even though they all come up under this, giving glory to God, Paul just gives a very straight command. Here it is, verse 32. And here it just kind of flies right up in your lap. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Principle number seven. It is your business, he says, not to offend. It's your business. Give no offense. So where's the onus? On me. Where's the onus? On you. Give no offense. It's a Greek adjective, a proskopoi. Give no offense. It means be blameless. Within the gray area decisions, within your freedom in Christ, you are to be blameless. And it's the word we looked at before. It has to do with the surface of a road or a path where there is nothing sticking up 
on which to stumble or trip. We've seen Paul use it over and over again. You see, your concern is not your rights, and your concern is not what you want to do. Your concern is to be blameless. And catch this, catch this, beloved, catch this. You don't get to set the threshold for what offends another person. They set the threshold. You get it? If we really understand that the onus is on, this command is directed from Paul. It's not Paul's suggestion. Hey, by the way, if, if it's okay, just try not to offend anybody. Paul says, give no offense. See? So the threshold for what offends is the other person's. What they say offends them. That's why when you're sitting at the dinner party and somebody leans over and says, I can't eat this. That has become the threshold for your freedom. You see? And it's not that we want the church to stay immature. We don't. We want the church to grow. But at the time that it's occurring, you've got to give. And then perhaps come back and say, okay, here's why this was okay in my life. And begin to help the other person grow. So the church is not dominated by immature people. And they're not ruling and telling us what to do. But we have to give. Okay? Give no offense to Jew, to Greek, or to the church. Your concern is not doing what you want whenever you want with no concern about what someone else thinks about it. Your freedom is governed by what someone else thinks about it. And finally, look at verse 33. We're going to wrap up right here. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. And Paul gives us the example from his own life, again, as we saw before. And this is principle eight, concerning the use of freedom and the ability to make gray area decisions. Everything you do, here it is, beloved. Everything you do, everything you allow, is to be for the furtherance of the gospel. You certainly don't want to pull up the road, but you'd like to help someone come along and see Christ for who he really is. Everything you do, everything you allow, that's Paul's principle. It's the last one that he's going to give here. This is what I do, he says. I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Everything you do, everything you allow, is to be for the furtherance of the gospel. Remember Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, But I do not consider my life or of any account as dear to myself. Why, Paul? So that I may finish my course and the mystery which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly the gospel of the grace of God. My life is not dear to me, Paul said, in any way. But the, most thing, the thing that's most dear to me is by my life or by my death, Paul says later, that the gospel be proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 9, 22, remember that? Paul says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win weak. The weak I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I've limited my freedom, Paul says. Uh, I'm, I'm free of all men, but I've become all things to all people that by all means I may save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. In other words, Paul says, you're free to be a servant for the gospel. I pattern and prioritize my life for the sake of the gospel. Not for my own sake, whatever I want to do, how I feel about it. All that stuff is subservient to these things. Paul says, I also please all men here in verse 33. Just as I also please all men. Greek verb oresco, present active indicative. This is the current situation of my life, Paul says. I please all men. And then he says, in all things. I guess at that point, you just look at that and you say, can you imagine making every decision with that thought foremost in your mind? As you think about your life as a believer on earth, it is not about you enjoying every possible freedom you can possibly enjoy to the max and fulfilling every possible desire and living out all your dreams. That's not the first thing. 
Paul says, I also please all men in all things that I may finish my course, that I may not seek my own profit, but the profit of many, so they may be saved, so that I do all things for the gospel. All things. Every freedom that belongs to you, every gray area decision that you need to make, every job decision, every purchase, every move, everything under that mandate. See? And I think that's the intensity that's required here. That's why Paul ends with it. Everything falls under it. And that's not easy to do. Paul says to the church, it's God's desire that you be spiritually healthy. So how do you live together and face, and the face you show the world is essential to your testimony? You're being examined by the world, so how are you living together inside the church? How are you managing your private life? Because what they need to see in relation to your freedom in Christ is not legalism. It's not all of everybody just taking care of their own selves and doing what they want. You don't want to cause a brother to stumble. You don't want to cause a brother to be trapped or to grieve. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you're trapped or put yourself in a position where you're doing something in your freedom, which God has disciplined others for in the past. It's a whole point that he went through with Israel. In their freedom, they did these things, and I had to discipline them. The Lord says, don't do those things. Don't complain. Don't do all that stuff. So you need to know what those things are and know yourself well enough to know what things will do that to you, bring you into bondage, cause you to walk down that road. And you want to be aware of the culture and what their expectations are. So Paul says, some things that are presently marking your life are not bringing good results and they may be costly, so beware. And he says, some things that are being exercised are not building up your spiritual walk and they're not furnishing your spiritual house. They're taking things away from it. And when you're thinking about what you're going to do, Paul says, make sure it's going to positively affect those around you. When it comes right down to just living in the culture, realize don't trouble your conscience constantly. Don't try to, to find trouble. Don't try to create doubt in your mind. Just walk in faith. But if the freedom that you're enjoying creates questions about your testimony or causes a believer to question his conscience, you're going to have to limit that freedom in that area. And remember, overall, what you allow in your life should make the attributes of God clear. So if you're unsure about what you're doing, just ask yourself, will this make God's attributes clear? Or if somebody will somebody question me about it and wonder why I'm doing it, and then I'll have to go through a very long explanation of why this is okay for me to do. Because if that's the path you're going down, you're going down the opposite path Paul wants you to be on. And remember, Paul says it's your business not to offend. It's your business to make sure you're not offending. So everything falls on you as that, in that respect. And finally, everything you do, everything you allow, is to be for the furtherance of the gospel. I'll just leave you with this thought this afternoon from Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue these things which make for peace and for the building up of one another. Let's bow in prayer, would you? Father, we thank you today for this great opportunity again to be together in your word. We're so uh, thankful for the fellowship of the saints here today. We thank you for the guests who are with us. Who, Lord, we pray that your word was uh, encouraging to their own heart and instructive as you desire for it to be, for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. That we may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord, that is our desire as we teach verse by verse through the word. And I pray that you will use your Holy Spirit to uh, bridge over the places where I've messed that up and 
and minister to the hearts of the people who are here for your own glory, that they may grow and be furnished for the things you have for them for their future. Thank you again, Father, for the many workers we have that are serving downstairs now and served last hour in our Sunday school hour. So grateful for the many who come and give themselves for the sake of the kingdom. I pray that you'll bless them and encourage them. Help us to be grateful for them. Thank you for the week that is ahead as we come off of this message so relevant for us as we reevaluate our lives. Perhaps here at the beginning of the year, a good thing to do as we think about the things we've allowed and the reasons we've had and the excuses we've had to make for doing what we're doing. And Father, I pray that you'll clarify that for us. Help us to see that's not the direction we need to go, but instead make sure that we're not offending and we have to know what it is that offends and help us to be wise in those areas, Father. And Lord, I thank you for uh, just this opportunity to come back this evening as John brings the word again out of Joshua. We're grateful for his teaching and for the instruction it gives us and the encouragement and uh, understanding of our own walk in faith and how God works through that still uh, to this day. So, Father, for all these things, we give you praise. We look forward to the coming of your son and catching away the church. And, Father, I pray that we'll be those servants who are found faithful, doing what you asked us to do, being about the great commission and the great commandment for your own glory and for your own sake. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.